0: Last week, we began to show how God and His providence has preserved both His Word and His church. We discussed how throughout history, the two big attacks against the Word of God and the church are what? Do you remember? Or the two big attacks. False teaching and suffering. Persecution. Absolutely. False teaching, false gospels, heresies. You had it, Brianna. And, and, and suffering or Persecution. We began with Jesus last week. We saw how how he fulfilled the will of his Father who sent him by preaching the truth about who he was, about who sent him, about salvation, about holy living and many other things. You're in John 17. So as you're in John 17, look at verse 4 with me. Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer and he says to his Father in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So now the question is, what is the work that the Father gave him to do? Well, we read on. Now go to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people. That's one of the things he was sent to do. Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Notice, word is being spoken of here. Verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them, have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, you don't need to flip there right now. But Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2 says that long ago God spoke through whom? Anybody remember? The prophets. But now he has spoken through what? His son. Now, side note, this is what's really, really neat. You want to know another biblical example against the apocryphal writings? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke through his prophets. Now, what's interesting, the last prophet that we see chronologically is in Chronicles. What's really neat is none of the authors of the apocryphal writings claim to be prophets. Prophets. In fact, one of them says, and I I, I can't quote it right now, I can post this on Realm later because this is off my head. One of them even says that in this day, in these days, there is no prophet speaking from the Lord. So the apocryphal writings claim there's no prophet being spoken, no prophet in their day, and none of them claim to be prophets. None of them say, Thus says the Lord. So you see in Hebrews 1, long ago God spoke, there's prophets. Now he speaks what? Through his son. Is there anything in between? Nothing. It's another biblical evidence against the apocryphal writing. So now, Jesus has come. This is the next Word incarnate. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And now he's speaking. He's accomplishing what God has sent him to do. The will of the Father. And this is, in, in one part, speaking and teaching the truth of what God has told him to teach. You also see in verse 13 that Jesus spoke these things in the world that we would have his what or that we that we would have his joy and and what read verse 13 for me that we may have whose joy and it may be fulfilled in us so this now brings a question what Jesus spoke was so that we could have his joy. But that leaves us with two questions. Number one, what did Jesus speak? Number two, what is his joy? If what Jesus spoke was so that we could have his joy and his joy might be fulfilled in us, what did he speak and what is his joy? And again, this is important in the context of the preservation of God's word in his church. If you look at what some of the things Jesus spoke are, I'll give you a list. Here's just a few. You must be born again. You must repent you must take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow him. That's a tough one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must love your enemies. You must rejoice when you suffer. If your eye makes you stumble, what? Pluck it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, what? Cut it off. Whoever slops you on your right cheek, do what? Turn and let him hit the other one as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your what also? Your coat, your tunic. Also, forgive those who wrong you, even if they keep wronging you, over and over and over and over, Beth, and over, Beth, and over, Beth, and over, Beth. The list goes on and on and on. These are tough sayings. Look, look, what Jesus spoke was radical. And, and by the way, from a worldly standpoint, no thanks. You remember what happened when the rich man approached him in Luke? He said, what must I do to have eternal life, to be saved? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and strength. Or or do do the commandments. He says, these I've done. He says, this one thing you lack. What? Go and sell all that you have. Come and follow me. And the rich man left away discouraged. Sad. Why? Because he had many possessions. There's nothing simple in an easy, worldly standpoint about following Christ. In fact, if you look in the Gospels, there's over 500 commands that Jesus gives. And yet He says, these things I've spoken to you, that you may have my joy. So we see first and foremost, that the call to follow Christ's word is for our joy Even though it is more radical than any other teaching in the world. The question becomes then well, what is Jesus' joy? What is the joy that he wants us to have? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 reveals a a pretty clear part about this joy. In verse 1 it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do this? We do it by looking to whom? Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So Christ, the pinnacle, He's the founder. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. So He does this. He gives us joy and we can have this faith by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, suffering, despising the shame, persecution, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this joy, don't miss this, this joy that Jesus wants us to have, the joy that Jesus has, the joy of Jesus is that Jesus would be exalted to God's right hand in the assembly of a redeemed people that He would purchase through His own suffering. And this is the joy He wants us to have. Not that we may be exalted like Christ, but that Christ would be exalted in our life. And this happens through the teaching of what Christ taught. John 17. He now prays that the Father would be with the apostles as they now complete the Word of God. You, we've read in Peter one twenty one. That no prophecy was from men; men was carried along in the Holy Spirit. We talked about how Peter affirms all of Paul's writings. How Paul affirms Luke's writings. So now you see the apostolic movement of completing and fulfilling the word of God. The teaching carries on. But you also see that the joy of Jesus that he calls us to have is a joy found in suffering. So we talked last week. God preserving his word in his church through the teaching, the right teaching of God's word. And through suffering is a joyful thing. In fact, the two go hand in hand. Because when you speak out against false gospels, or when you preach the truth of the gospel, there will be persecution and suffering. The world does not accept that or like that. That's why all these radical things that we read about last week were happening. People were opposing this kind of dynamic, radical life of living for Christ and Him only. Jesus was the most important part of God's preservation of His Word and His church. It is indeed, after all, His Word and His church. Christ preserved it by coming to us in the likeness of flesh, humbling Himself to the point of death. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He completed the will of the one who sent him by teaching, exposing false teaching all around him and then suffering much so that those who came to him would be redeemed. This is his joy and it is how he preserved his word and his church through the gospel and through suffering. We talked last week about how the disciples followed in his footsteps. These men also fulfilled their ministry through the teaching of the word Of Christ through exposing false teaching, enduring suffering, persecution, beatings, ultimately all except for John were martyred for the preservation of God's Word and God's Church. We then see how the Apostolic Fathers and the first Christians during the first two centuries AD followed in the Lord's footsteps from the Apostles. These now common men, common women, clung to the word of God, were copying the word of God, were hiding the word of God from those who were trying to burn these copies. They were dragged out, they were imprisoned. they were beaten, they were killed, they were martyred because of their love for the Lord and to preserve His word, to preserve His church, all for God's glory so that the nations would know about Christ. They stirred up one another in good works by not neglecting to meet with one another. They stood fast in the midst of heavy persecution under Nero, Domitian, Pliny, Trajan. They exposed false doctrines, false gospels, like Gnosticism, like Marcion. They copied, spread the scriptures. Many laid down their lives in such a way that God was glorified and they were able to experience, therefore, the very joy of Jesus by teaching the words of Christ and by suffering in His suffering. All the while, the world is watch- watching. Conversions are happening. The church is strengthened. The word of God is being spread. The word of God is being translated. It's being copied and it is multiplying. <laughs> Satan has sought to destroy God from the beginning through false teaching. We talked last week we talked last week in the garden. Did God really say false teaching? But God in his providence has used Satan like a dog on a leash. Allowing Him to do many things, even evil things, without God Himself being evil. So that God's glory would be displayed, and His Word and His church would not only be preserved, but that the church would be strengthened by the very Word of God. So tonight, we continue this train of thought. We see how God's Word continued to be spread and preserved. How the church grew in the midst of suffering and false teaching from the 4th century through the Middle Ages. What I'd like to do tonight with the the time we have left is highlight some of the persecutions that broke out during the remainder of the patristic period as well as persecution in the Middle Ages. I want to highlight some of the crucial men that had a great impact on exposing false teaching. I want to highlight some of the important councils that took place during this time period as well and pave a little bit of a pathway that reveals this divide that now happens leading up to the Reformation. So we'll begin with the remaining persecution during the patristic period. This begins with Septimus Severus, the beginning of the 3rd century, became emperor. He proposed a plan to bring all of his subjects under the worship of Saul Invictus. In other words, the unconquered son, not son the one Christ. Unconquered son, this is the Roman god, this is the son. In other words, what Septimus Severus wanted to do is he wanted to unite religion and the empire. He stated that all the gods were to be accepted of all the people as long as one acknowledged that the Son, the soul Invictus, reigned above all of them. Now this obviously proposed an issue for Christians, right? So persecution broke out. And it broke out not necessarily because you were Christian, but because you were converted to Christianity. The goal under Septimus Severus in the empire was to stop the multiplication of the church. That was the problem. The most famous martyrdom during this time is that of Perpetua and Felicitas. They were two women of five catechumens. Catechumens were converts who were awaiting baptism. The other three catechumens were three young men. Now Perpetua was a young mother. She had a nursing infant. And her friend Felicitas was pregnant. So these five were arrested. Perpetua's father pleaded with her to recant her faith, but she would not. Felicitas, being pregnant, was worried that her life would be spared because she was pregnant and that she wouldn't be able to join her other four companions in martyrdom. However, during the time they were arrested, Felicitas, at eight months pregnant, gave birth to her child. The jailers listened to her moan, saw her moan in excruciating pain during childbirth, and asked her, yeah, remember, childbirth was a little different back then. The woman is groaning, moaning in pain. The jailers looked at her and asked her how she expected to be able to face the beasts in the arena arena, if she's having such a hard time with birth. She responds and says this, Right now, my sufferings are only mine. Think back to Eve, the consequence of her sin, pains and childbirth. Perpetua says, right now, my sufferings are only mine. But when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall shall be suffering for him. The first two men were then put in the arena. They died quickly and bravely. The third boy, Secundulus, stood there as the beast refused to attack him. It's a strange sight. They wouldn't come after him. In fact, they started attacking the Roman soldiers. So the man calls out, cries out for a leopard to come and attack him. And indeed, a leopard comes and kills him. And finally, Perpetua and Felicitas were sent in the arena to be killed by a crazed cow. The crazed cow hit them, thrown, threw them over and over and over. Perpetua pleaded that it stop Thinking she would recant, they hold back the crazed cow and instead she asks if she could have permission to retie her hair because loose hair was a sign of mourning and this was a joyful day for her. So they held back the crazed cow, she fixed her hair and they killed the two women with the sword. Over the course of the next 50 years, persecution was rare. And during this time, converts to Christianity were great The church was multiplying. Then, in 249, a man named Decius became the emperor for two years, and persecution broke out again. Under Decius, there is a serious economic crisis, which he believed was because the empire had rejected the ancient Roman gods. So he believed that to restore valor to the empire, the empire, entire empire, needed to return to worshipping the Roman gods. So he puts an edict out that all of the empire must worship the Roman gods. However, Christians obviously refused. Persecution came upon any who rejected. Now, interestingly enough, again, just like Septimus Severus, kind of, Decius decides that there will be no martyrdom. We will not be killing Christians. They're worth few, but they're rare. And the reason is because, as Tertullian spoke, the blood of the martyrs was becoming the seed of the church. And what, and what Odysseus did not want is for more crisis and issues to happen in the empire by Christians laying down their lives and now the church exploding because of this faith. So he decided a new persecution will break out. There will not be martyrs. There will be excruciating and insane torture. He intended to imprison and torture Christians, not kill them. This was actually probably some of the most Cruel persecution because it was drawn out sometimes for months, sometimes for a couple of years. Men and women were tortured almost daily and would either recant their faith or would be released at the end. Many Christians were unprepared for this type of persecution and challenge. I think many of us could admit it would be easier tonight to lay down my life than it would be to suffer for the next two years every single day under incredible torture. So this was an issue. It had also been decades since the last persecution. And so many recanted their faith. They were called apostates. And you know martyrs are those who laid on their lives. But there was one other word that came out of this persecution because of the difference of this persecution. And that is the word called confessors. Confessors were men and women who stood firm during the cruel torture and would be released at the end of their persecution, standing firm. These men and women would come back to the church with great honor because they endured some of the toughest of persecution. After Decius, there is about another 40 years of peace until what was the final and greatest persecution of church history during the patristic period. Many would argue... uh, we're going to talk about the Middle Ages and the persecution, but the persecution did not come necessarily from, from pagan, uh, outside of religion type of people like, like Romans and Greeks and things like that. It happened actually mostly in the church. Outside of even recently, the last couple hundred years have actually been some incredible persecution, suffering happening. But outside of maybe the last couple hundred years, this was some of the cruelest of persecution during the end of the patristic period. This was under the reign of Diocletian. Diocletian was the man responsible for separating the empire for the first time into four different territories. And in these four different territories, there were two emperors and two Caesars, in order that there could now be uh, a train of those who would become emperor, become Caesar, become emperor, become Caesar. Now, issues began to arise under these different territories because as armies were increasing, Christians sometimes were refusing to join the army because they did not want to shed blood, over what were improper reasons. And Christians, who were even converted in the army, there was a fear that they would refuse orders. So it was sent out, cast out, that Christians were not allowed to be among the ranks. And those who were Christian soldiers in many of the armies would actually be killed for fear that they would disobey orders. Then an edict was sent out among the entire empire that all Christians and government or in leadership roles or teachers among the entire empire either needed to recant their faith or they would be killed. Every single one. They wanted to eliminate any Christian influence across the empire. It was also during this time that church buildings or homes that were known to be places of worship were burned or destroyed. They began seeking out every copy of scripture that they could find to burn it and destroy it. Another reason why we don't have a tremendous amount of early manuscripts and copies. However, during this time, because of the extreme persecution, Christians would flee. There was a diaspora, a dispersion of Christians throughout the empire and outside the empire, mainly throughout all of Europe, some of Asia, Asia Minor, and into North Africa. They would bring copies of scripture with them. They would copy them. They would translate them into new tongues of the places they were going and they would start new churches. So ironically, what happened under Diocletian intending to eliminate Christians and influence actually helped further the gospel in the sense that now more people and nations and tribes and tongues are hearing the gospel and churches are being planted. Again, you see how God is preserving and, and sovereign over all of these things. That his word would go forth to the uttermost parts of the earth and that the church would be to the uttermost parts of the earth. Powerful stuff. It was during this time that men like Clement, Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, Ambrose, John Chrysostom, Jerome, and Augustine were all huge voices in the church and teaching of the scriptures. So what I want to do now, what I want to do now is briefly highlight a few of these men. Because although they were sinful men, and, and many of them had actually theological flaws, which we're going to talk about, they were each crucial even in their flaws and sin, in the preservation of God's word and his church. We'll begin with Clement. Clement of Alexandria. Anybody ever heard of Clement of Alexandria? Okay, yeah. He, he was born into a pagan family, but became a believer, was converted, and actually ended up becoming the head of the school in Alexandria. Had a very philosophical background, a lot of philosophical influence in his pagan family. So he was heavily involved in philosophy himself and had a desire to bring pagan philosophers to Christ. So at a time when Gnostic teaching was becoming ever more popular, Clement taught that faith faith in Christ and the Word of God was the basis of true knowledge. In fact, a lot of what we're doing this year in Refuge was a lot of what his work was in this uh, time during the patristic period. Now, there are holes in some of his approach of philosophy because he believed that philosophy and logic and reason could actually lead to faith. And we would say that, uh, no, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit does these types of things. But his desire to be countercultural was unlike anyone else in his day. He believed that the biblical worldview was the only true worldview. He might have even been the first presuppositionalist. (laughs) <laughs> not, not Greg Bonson, although uh, he would have been a different approach. He fought especially for pagan philosophers to see the truth of a biblical worldview, that faith only comes from the Word of God and in Christ. Many believe that Clement was actually the teacher of Origen, which leads us to our next one. Origen. He was one of the earliest and most important Christian scholars. Anybody ever heard of Origen? Cool. He's remembered both for exceptional scholarship and a fanatical commitment to purity. He's the one who is credited with this is amazing. Talk about this. Talk about the preservation of God's word. How we talk about the reliability of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Origen was the one who produced hundreds of works on theology, textual criticism, and biblical interpretation, what we know as hermeneutics. Many believe that he's the father of these types of practices. A few of his views were unorthodox to the point that later generations debated whether or not he was actually a saint or a heretic. We'll talk about that in a second. But Origen was also countercultural. In fact, he was so countercultural and wanted to actually have um, a defense that he would go and study under non-Christian philosophers in his birth city of Alexandria, Egypt. The reason is because he wanted to better understand their arguments so that he could come against them with the word of God. He produced massive works on textual criticism, but he also responded to anti-Christian work. One of Origen's flaws was that he considered the Trinity a ranking. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an equality he even believed that everyone, even demons, would one day be forgiven and purified by God. He sometimes had what would be considered a universalist uh, sense of theology and salvation. So these claims were, were what led to him being declared a heretic by various councils in the centuries after his death. So it's here that you wonder, well then why do you mention origin? Why, when we're talking about how God preserved his word in his church, would we use a guy who wrongly understood the Trinity... And also was somewhat of a universalist. Well, I want to remind you, David was an adulterer and a murderer. Abraham was a constant, consistent liar. Moses was a murderer. Saul was a murderer. Peter, because you look at Saul and you would say, well, that was before Christ. Well, Peter was just in the garden with Christ and then denies him three times. I mean, that, that's in some sense what some people Qualifies apostasy. And yet, God used these fallen men. And I remind you, it is not about the righteousness of men. It is the grace of God. It is God's work. In other words, it wasn't Origen who preserved God's word and God's church. It was God. But God uses the means of man. Origen devoted his life to making evidence reason, and scripture accessible to as many people as possible. Heretic or not, he is among the most important figures of the early church. Next, you have Tertullian. He was known as the father of Latin theology. Most of his writing was in defense of Christianity, against persecution from without or heresy from within. He had an enormous influence on the early church. Much of that influence can actually still be seen today. He was one of the biggest speakers against Marcion, against Gnosticism, And he was one of the biggest defenders of the Trinity. He was also a key player in the transition of the church from a persecuted minority to a major influence in Roman society. He he began a new era where the persecution wasn't in the sufferings of the people, but the persecution was in the attacks of false gospels. However, again with Tertullian, there were flaws. Because later in his life, Tertullian adopted Montanism. Ever, Ever heard of Montanism? This marked him as a heretic in the church. Montanism was a movement that believed in new prophecy. Believed that the last days weren't when Jesus came, but when Montanus came. And now these prophecies revealed new things about Christ, about God. Some of them were incredibly heretical and unbiblical. Even still, Tertullian was a man greatly used of God to define and defend the essential doctrines of the faith. Namely the Trinity, and we are still benefiting from his ministry today. One more that I want to show is Athanasius. He's one of my personal favorites. He's one of the heroes of the faith in the context of fighting against heresies. When Constantine became emperor and gave the Edict of Milan in 313, which, which the Edict of Milan changed Christianity from a persecuted religion to an officially sanctioned one across the entire empire. But during this time, heresy came upon the Christian faith instead of persecution, in the suffering form. And one of the biggest heretics during this time was a man named Arius. Ever heard of Arius? Arius taught that God begat Jesus so that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. In other words, he said that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus was God-like but was not God. Thus began the heretical teaching of Arianism. Athanasius was one of the biggest defenders of the faith against Arianism. In fact, Emperor Constantine was seeking to resolve the dispute over Arianism, so he called a council of bishops which met in Nicaea, in Bithynia, in Asia Minor, in the year 325. This is the Council of Nicaea, an important council in church history. Athanasius attended this council with his his bishop, And it was there that Athanasius was recognized as a lead spokesman for the view that the Son, Jesus, is fully God, that he is co-equal with God, he is co-eternal with the Father. At the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius' view was in the majority. All that was needed was to formulate a creedal statement to express the consensus. So initially, the council sought to formulate from Scripture a statement that would express the full deity and eternal nature of the Son, But Arius was claiming that he was using Scripture to do the same thing. So finally, there was a word that came into being at the Council of Nicaea that is an important, important word when it comes to the context of the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ. And that is homousuit. Homoousuit. Homoousius. (laughs) Homoousius. All right. Say that five times fast. This word was introduced at the Council of Nicaea. I, I said that just so I could wake people up. This word was used because Arianism could not twist it like they were twisting scripture. Now some of the bishops refused and were angry about using a word that was a non-biblical word even though they knew that the word was developed from the truth of God's word. But they all decided to eventually agree so that Arianism Arius and Arianism could not contort the truth of the Father because here's what homoousius means it means that Christ is of the same substance, nature, and essence of God, which Arius rejected. The church could not afford this council to be unclear on the question of whether the Son is truly God. The result was that the council adopted what we now call the Nicene Creed. Ever heard of the Nicene Creed? This is what declared the Son to be begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So we we see a few interesting things here. I brought this up because I want us to notice a couple things about what just took place. First, we begin to see that councils and synods are happening. We mentioned, you know, if you look at the the canon, Athanasius was the first person to use the word canon, the totality of Scripture. What is Scripture, what isn't? In a, a closed book, a closed list of what is Scripture It was not the council in 393 of Carthage that determined that these were Scripture. It was the council of Carthage that was saying there are heresies and false writings coming and creeping into the church. Therefore, we need to come together as godly men based on the Word of God and declare this is what the church declares because of the truth of God's Word. This is not God's Word, speaking of the apocryphal writings and things of the like. These councils and synods that happened were always defenses to heresies. It is different than the likes of the Roman Catholic Church. They would often meet, although many would say the Council of Trent was to defend against the Protestant Reformation, um, which indeed it was, and we'll talk about that in a second, but they would they would also meet, have councils and synods in order to dictate and determine extra-biblical doctrine or practice. So you see here, It's important because these gatherings were where doctrine was determined or writings or teachings were accepted or rejected specifically. You also see that words began to be used that were not necessarily biblical words but were necessary and biblical to be able to defend heresies that were going against scripture like the word homousias or the word trinity which is not a word found in the Bible but it is absolutely a biblical concept. You can even look at Ephesians chapter 1 when it talks about our salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, you see the work of God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is sealing them, all involved in the work of salvation. So creeds now came into being that simply stated biblical truths in a form that was clear and concise in regard to doctrine and as a defense against heresy. So you have the Nicene Creed, you've got the Apostles' Creed. The Didache, which was in the first century. Now, none of these are Scripture. They're all subordinate to Scripture. But they are works that were labored over by godly men in defense against heresies and are used by us in a positive way, subordinate to Scripture to provide biblical doctrine for the church. This is why it's important even in churches today to have a statement of faith. You might say, well, why can't you just say as a church we believe the Bible? Because you've got about a thousand different views of the Bible. So doctrinal statements of faith are important. It's important to affirm things. We're actually going to talk about this at the end of tonight as well. Now in 451, you have the Council of Chalcedon. This was another important step in clarifying the nature of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. The Council of Chalcedon is important for what's about to happen in the Middle Ages. Because it was the Council of Chalcedon that anathematized or cursed or, or cast out those who, were taught, those who taught that Christ had only a single divine nature and those who taught a mixture of His two natures. The council produced the Chalcedonian definition which affirms that Christ is the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. He's truly God and truly man. Although that is a mystery. And one that we will know someday. It was actually the council of Chalcedon that would later lead to what is known as the Great Schism during the Middle Ages. The Great Schism is the title given to the gap that formed in the church in the 11th century AD. It really happened in the centuries leading up to it, okay? So we're not we're not skipping 700 years. It was this separation that led to the Roman Catholic Church, hereafter known as the Western Church, and the Greek Catholic or the Greek Orthodox Church, hereafter known as the... Eastern Church. Now, I want to pause. Everybody say hi. Sweet. We just concluded the patristic period. We are now going into a very important part in church history that is important for us today as evangelicals or Protestants or Christ followers because this is where a big divide begins to happen in the empire. The gospel is going to other nations, but this is when the Roman Catholic Church really starts to create this power and this doctrine, which is prevalent today leading to the Protestant Reformation. This is important in our history. For anybody who would believe in the doctrine of grace as far as justification by faith alone, if you would believe that the Word of God is the sole authority, not the church, this is an important thing for you to know. We now enter the Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages is the term for what was lasted from about the 5th century to the 15th century. It's this time period. It was dominated in in Europe by the Holy Roman Empire. The the Middle Ages was dominated in Europe by the Holy Roman Empire. It was during this time that you had the Crusades, which we're not going to discuss because that is really a, a Christians against Muslim issue. And just for the sake of what we're doing, we're leading up to the Protestant Reformation I'd be happy to talk about the Crusades. It's an embarrassment, by the way, for Christians. Um, and so we should know that and be willing to uh, admit that. But I'm willing to talk about this of the time. It just ha- doesn't really have a place in what we're trying to accomplish here. You also have the Inquisition, the Iron Rule, the Roman Catholic Church. So the church from the 4th century on had five patriarchs or heads. This is important. Each one governed a different area in the empire. So what you had is you had Rome, which spoke Latin. Then you had Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Byzantium, and the East, which all spoke Greek. This is important in understanding what the Roman Catholics believed to be vulgar languages, right? And why they clung to Latin. Now, Constantine wanted to create a new Christian empire, so he moved the capital of the empire to Byzantium, which would later be named as what? Constantinople. Yeah, sorry. It was during this time that Germanic tribes began invading much of Europe, which is known as the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages are the early part of the Middle Ages. Often the term Dark Ages refers to the initial 500 years following the fall of Rome in 476. Due to economic and political turmoil, as well as great geographical distances, language differences, etc., there became a great schism, a gap between the West and the East among Christians. The growing list of differences between the East and the West simply intensified the tensions. One of the most striking differences was that as new people were evangelized in the West, they had to use the Latin as their their liturgical and ecclesiastical language while looking to Rome for leadership. But on the other hand, in the East, you've got missionaries from the East translating the Bible in the language of the people. And when the new churches in the east became mature, they became self-governing and administratively independent from their mother church in Rome, in the west. Rome began to require that all clergy were celibate, whereas in the east they retained married clergy. Thank you, Lord. I'm a product of the east. Right? Okay. You can now see how the Roman Catholic Church is beginning. Right? It was the great schism that was essentially the forerunner of the Protestant Reformation. A refusal to accept the unbiblical concept of the supremacy of Rome at its core was what caused people to walk away from the Roman Church and what caused the Roman Church to separate from the Eastern Church. The Roman Catholics believed that, just so you know, that the Roman Catholics will believe that the Roman Catholic Church goes far before uh, the, the great schism. I just want to let you know uh, Roman Catholic is an oxymoron. And here's why it's an oxymoron. Catholic uh, means universal. Right? And so the, the church, we, we were all, when, when, if a Roman Catholic tells you, well, we all come from Catholics, that is true. Roman Catholicism has totally distorted what was the true Catholic church, the universal church. In the East, you've got the word of God being spread into all these other countries and new languages, and yet the West, Rome, is holding, no, Rome, 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 Rome. Roman universal church. Doesn't make sense, right? But Roman Catholics will say that they go much further before this, and and what they'll base it on is really uh, beginning with, with Peter. So what you have is the Roman Catholics believe that Christ made Peter the leader of the apostles and the leader of the church and giving him the keys of the kingdom, which you find in Matthew sixteen, eighteen through 19. Peter, according to Roman Catholics, what I'm about to read is according to Roman Catholics. Peter later became the first bishop of Rome. Now as bishop of Rome, he exercised authority over all other bishops and church leaders. The teaching that the bishop of Rome is above all other bishops and authority is referred to as the primacy of the Roman bishop. Peter passed on his apostolic authority to the next bishop of Rome, which is where we get the session of Pope, 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 although there was a split uh, as well, along with the other apostles who passed on their apostolic authority to the bishops that they ordained. At one time, the papacy could be bought by royal families as well in the history, so we don't have time to go into these types of things, but there's all kinds of corruption throughout all of this. These new bishops in turn passed on that apostolic authority given to them. It just, you need to understand how unbiblical it even is to say that anybody today could have apostolic authority. The apostles were given apostolic authority. And then that was done. Right? So on. The passing on of apostolic authority is referred to as apostolic succession. Based upon the claim of an unbroken chain of Roman bishops, Roman Catholics teach that the Roman Catholic Church is the true church, that all other churches that do not accept the primacy of the Pope have broken away from them, which is the original and one true church. We're going to talk much more about Roman Catholicism next week during the Protestant Reformation. So we've been discussing God's providence of preserving His Word in His Church. And even here during the Middle Ages the gospel was available and was increasing in the East. The Roman Catholic Church, yes, and the Holy Roman Empire were splitting from the rest of the empire. And the translation of the Bible into common languages was forbidden by the Roman Catholic Church. But even here, God's people were active and were mobile and unwilling to be subordinate to a church rather than to the word of God. So as Rome began consolidating its power over the church, there were those who refused to acknowledge the bishop of Rome as their head. And the gospel began to be spread now throughout Europe. Even preached as far as Ireland from AD 32 by St. Patrick. I can't pronounce his real name, but I want to talk about St. Patrick really quick for you. And maybe it will give you a, a shed some new light on how you can celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Maybe we can, instead of wearing green, we can, I don't know. Uh, but maybe instead of getting drunk, we can go uh, tell people about Christ because that's what St. Patrick did. <laughs> St. Patrick is a great example. A great example of the growth of the church, the preservation of his word during the Middle Ages. It was Patrick's extensive missionary work in Ireland for which Patrick is famous and there is a St. Patrick's Day. So here's what's neat. Think about Christ's example. Think about the preservation of God's word as church. Think about Satan's attack using suffering and false gospels. Patrick was 16 years old and was captured by Irish raiders spent several years as a slave in Ireland, suffering in false teaching. He escaped, and through some pretty radical events, felt called to go back to the very people who had captured him and enslaved him so that he could tell them about Christ. During his 30 years of work there, according to history, there were over 135,000 converts, 300 established churches, and 350 elders or pastors or shepherds that were discipled. Now again, Patrick had flaws in some of his application of the word. But he's a prime example of somebody who dedicated his life to proclaiming the gospel to an unreached people that had previously persecuted. He goes into false gospels, false teaching, in the midst of where he suffered, and he preaches the gospel. Now, as we come to a close, it was actually during the Middle Ages, that persecution in the church was now being done by the so-called church. Persecution is now changing. This is a big point. It is no longer Rome uh, as far as these Roman gods and all this kind of stuff. Remember, Rome is now controlled by Roman Catholicism. Uh, and so it, it is no longer like these invaders and pagan worshipers of these false gods and things like that. Although I... I Roman Catholicism could fit in many regards into those categories. But it was people who called themselves Christians. People who called themselves Christ followers who are now persecuting Christ followers. There were few breakouts of persecution in regard to being a Christian, but it was now basically based on doctrine and who has authority. This really began in the 12th century specifically. Now leading to the Protestant Reformation, which where there, there was a great breaking out of persecution. The church in Rome had discarded the truths of scriptures and the commandments of love, and they began to take up the sword against all who opposed their doctrine, the Roman Catholic Church. For example, infant baptism was introduced by the Church of Rome, not in a way that Presbyterians do, although my Presbyterian brother right here, I'm not a, a infant baptism guy. Many Christians rejected this practice. The biggest ones during the 11th and 12th century who rejected this practice by the Roman Catholics uh, were the Anabaptists. Ever heard of the Anabaptists? The Anabaptists believed that baptism was a conscious act of faith by the believer. They were so passionate about it, that they spoke out against this, and they were persecuted severely. In fact, many were actually chained with weights At their feet and thrown over cliffs or bridges into rivers and lakes, drowned since they loved immersion so much. The Roman Catholic Church was growing into a deep and dangerous authority that was not given to them by the Word of God. They began to make claims and create doctrines that were false and heretical. Many movements against the Roman Catholic Church happened long before the Reformation. You've got Peter Waldo, which many of you have read about on Desiring God's highlighting of all these people. In 1170, he spoke against the Roman Catholic Church. You also had many people long before Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. There were men and women who had stood up for reform and the true gospel. Among them, you've got John Wycliffe. Come Saturday and you can learn more about John Wycliffe. You get to meet John Wycliffe on Saturday. He was an English theologian and Oxford professor who was condemned as a heretic in 1415 for teaching that the common people should have access to the Bible. You got John Hus, John Huss. You will also be meeting him this Saturday. You get to meet John yourself. (laughs) He was a priest from Bohemia. Was burned at the stake in 1415 for his opposition to the Church of Rome. You've got Girolamo Savonarola who was an Italian friar who was hanged and burned in 1498. for The same type of things. Next week, we're going to look at one of the most crucial times of church history and one of the most incredible times of persecution. That's the, that's the Reformation. We'll discuss how God preserved His Word and His church yet again, and we'll also talk about the great divide between Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church. I would encourage you guys next week to come as we discuss what I believe to be one of the most dangerous, heretical teachings still prevalent today. And that's the Roman Catholic Church. I mean no offense by that. Right? In the sense of trying to make people feel uncomfortable. I will also say, I'm offended by what the Roman Catholic Church claims to be truth. Because it goes against the very word of God. And so again, you've got all kinds of false gospels out there. But when you got something that claims to be Christian and a Christ follower and God and salvation to come from the very succession of the apostles themselves, but is yet so heretical and has false doctrines and goes against Jesus' very teaching and does not preach that you are justified by faith alone, does not preach that Christ actually paid for your sin on the cross, that His atonement was sufficient, and that you need to preach Uh, pray to other people and the priest can tell you how to overcome your sins, I've got issues now. And so we're going to talk next week about how it was during the Protestant Reformation that brave and courageous men and women, because of God and His providence, preserving His word in His church, spoke out, gave their lives so the word of God could be translated into a vulgar, wicked language like English. And things like baptism and transubstantiation and justification by faith alone Paid the ultimate price, but God was sovereign and continued to grow and multiply His church. Now, before we end tonight, I want to bring up one final thing. I think that tonight uh, is is a good opportunity to discuss this because we've discussed schisms, divides, doctrinal issues in tonight's study that arose during the later Patristic period and during the Middle Ages. Uh, It climaxes with Roman Catholicism specifically during the Protestant Reformation, but there were all kinds of issues. You had Aries, you had Montanus, you had um, uh, Marcion, Gnosticism. I want to talk tonight, really quickly at the end, about denominations. As you look throughout history, church history, there are many divisions, schisms, disagreements over doctrine. Many of these issues are what we would call primary issues. They're issues of salvation, of the Trinity, of who God is, of the deity of Christ, etc. But today we have a lot of divisions, even among evangelicals, over what many would call secondary issues. So when I, when I say evang- evangelicals, I mean uh, likes of like Southern Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Methodists, Pentecostals, etc. There's been a growing desire specifically in America, but among the world as well, but specifically in America, a growing desire to be united. And therefore, a surge of non-denominational churches have risen. They're all throughout every city, it seems like, a non-denominational church. The desire is because we don't want to be focused on things that divide and are not important, secondary, third issues, there's a nobleness here, right? I, I, I get it. What's, what's not admirable about a desire for unity among evangelicals or even people who just want to be called Christian, right? And you hear people say this all the time. Don't call me this. Don't call me that. Don't call, I just, I just I want to be a follower of Christ. Just call me a Christian. You hear people say, I don't want to be put in a basket with a label. I just want to be a lover and follower of Jesus. That seems nice. It seems enticing. And it seems that everyone who would oppose that thought would be a fool, But there's a problem with this line of thinking. If if you were to pull a hundred people who say, I just want to be a Christ follower. Don't give me a label. If you were to pull a hundred people who said this and you were to ask them, what does it mean to be a lover and follower of Jesus? You'll get 50 different answers. Would you agree? And that's the problem. See, when you have a non-denominational approach to church... And to doctrine, you do not allow yourself to take stands on major issues of doctrine. Any, in other words, in non-denominational churches, anything that would divide should not be taught, should not be discussed. Just keep the unity, keep the peace. And this is why you have a lot of issues of workspace type stuff, not a lot of preaching against sin and repentance. You have a lot of non-denominational churches accepting homosexuality and baptizing homosexuals and allowing for all these kinds of peoples and to be teachers and preachers who are not qualified because you just... Just God is love. Now again, I get the nobility here. It seems nice, but you are allowing for all kinds of wolves to creep into your congregation. It's dangerous. Second things are not secondary things are not unimportant. Secondary things are not non-crucial. In fact, our stance on secondary issues many times directly impacts our stance on primary issues. I personally believe in the necessity for denominations. I believe in doctrinal statements. Imagine the Council of Nicaea when Arius is saying that Jesus is not co-equal with God. When he's saying that he was not eternal, he was a created being. Imagine the bishops of all the churches then saying, you know what? It's a... Let's just not touch this. It's going to cause division. Let's not get together and come up with a doctrinal statement. Can you imagine if that would have happened? What about the issue of the Trinity? You may even say, oh, it's okay if you don't necessarily believe the Trinity, as long as you believe that there is, you know, Jesus who saved you and God the Father. And you would say, just let it be. You're saved by grace. You're not saved by knowing about the Trinity. Imagine the Council of Chalcedon saying, you know what, this isn't really an important matter in the fact, just so we can't, we won't divide people, let's not address the issue. You don't see that. In fact, you see men and women taking a stand for doctrine all throughout history, but we're kind of scared to do so today. I also believe that Dave Aubrey, who's not a Pentecostal, can teach alongside my Pentecostal brother about being saved by grace through faith. I also believe that I can stand... By my Presbyterian brother and preach the truth about sanctification. Whereas there may be disagreements about the gifts of the Spirit that I have with the Pentecostal or baptism with the Presbyterian. But I can work together along with those people. Uh, In a a promo for Together for the Gospel, which is a conference coming up this next year, it's every two years. John Piper tells about what gets him excited about a two-minute clip. And he says, this is what I love about Together for the Gospel You've got God-fearing, biblical-minded, passionate about God's glory people who come and preach. You've got John MacArthur who come and teaches, who's a cessationalist and believes that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. And then you've got C.J. Mahaney, who is just as reformed in his thinking as John MacArthur, believes that there can be a biblical approach to the gifts of the Spirit and that they're relevant for today. And you've got the two guys sitting side by side, preaching the gospel on the stage together. I love that too. There are some things that shouldn't divide in the context of working together for the sake of the gospel, but it's okay to have a denominational separation because of what is a conviction and what you believe about the Word of God. At the root, denominations are faith communities that embrace certain doctrines, certain traditions, certain habits, and certain priorities. Whether Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Assemblies of God, Lutheran, These labels, when taken seriously, (laughs) actually mean something. Now, I don't believe that we as a church will have full clarity on things until glory. I don't believe we will. But that does not mean that we should ignore so-called secondary issues or avoid denominations and titles. In other words... Should we not teach and preach and read passages that deal with holy living? Or drinking and eating? These are secondary things. Maybe third. Should we not deal with passages about modesty or purity or sexuality? Or spiritual gifts or meditation or baptism or Lord's Supper or discipleship or raising kids? Or church polity? Or marriage? Should we never teach these things? Should we never read these things? Was Paul lying when he told Timothy that... All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for teaching. All scripture is profitable for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. They do not classify in scripture what should be taught absolutely and should have a stand and what shouldn't be. It's the whole counsel of the word of God. But when you do that, with billions of people, you're going to have some different viewpoints. And that's Okay. We should be able to work together with other like-minded people even if there are non-crucial disagreements. Non-crucial. And here's why. It is not my understanding of spiritual gifts that determine whether or not I'm saved. It is not my understanding of infant baptism or believer's baptism that makes me saved or not saved. Denominations are worth it if they do not think their boundaries encompass the entire kingdom of Christ. And sometimes there can become a pride and arrogance with an association of a denomination. That's unbiblical. So while being loyal to our own denominations, Christians and churches should regularly, joyfully, and zealously work together across denominational boundaries. I bring this up because I think this plays a part in our discussion of God preserving His Word in His church. People thought over this. There were divides all throughout church history over core issues, secondary issues, primary issues. Tertullian struggled with Montanism, Origen struggled with the Trinity. We struggle today. Think of textual criticism. I, I want to compare denominations in one uh, real quickly to textual criticism. With textual criticism, you have a massive amount of text that we've argued. When you have 5,800 texts, it's not 5,800, not 5,700. When you got 5,800 texts, you can see more clearly the truth. In many ways, when you have denominations who tend to focus on specific things, who are still Christ-centered... Believe in the doctrine that you're saved by grace, through faith, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the primary things. You can still learn from others or be challenged or be equipped or be more firm in your own conviction when you look at these other issues. Denominations can help actually bring us together and have clarity and deep thinking on issues. It provides a platform for meaningful, necessary, deep discussions. It also allows for us to be able to disassociate with those who are clearly teaching false doctrine. When I say it's okay to work across the borders of denominations, that is not a black and white statement. There are some boundaries that should not be crossed. Not all denominations are worthy of being considered as Christ-centered, right? In other words, what I mean by that is, I, I, I do not want to be associated as a Christian the same way a Roman Catholic is. I don't want to be associated as a Christian in the same way a liberal Lutheran is. Nor do I want it to be associated as a Christian in the same way an Arminian is. I don't want to. So there are some divides that are important. However, I believe that denominations can actually encourage us to be unified. Non-denominationalists will say, this is what brings unity. But when you have people who have disagreements on some things in scripture, who can come together and say this is what is important and they can preach Christ and they can reach the the nations for the gospel of Christ with true, correct thinking, biblical, theological thought. Praise God. That's more unity than a non-denominational church who wants to avoid difficult issues. So I would encourage you all to find the beautiful biblical balance. I use these words carefully. Listen to me again. I would encourage you all to find the beautiful biblical balance of discarding labels and clinging to them. Too many people have the tendency to, don't put me in the boat with anything, I'm just Christian. Other people say, I am this to a core, don't you dare mess with me. There's a danger on both. There's an arrogance on both ends. I believe that working together as Christ-centered, Bible-believing, God-glorifying denominations allows for us to show the unity of the gospel in a way that non-denominationalists never will be able to. And those who are so stuck, thinking that they have figured everything out, will ever show. I'm always learning, and I want to be biblical. I grew up in a Southern Baptist home that prayed the prayer. It was very traditional. It was very topical. Today, I don't necessarily associate with that. I actually am still Southern Baptist, but I believe the majority of Southern Baptists are not that type of way anymore. Today, today, just so you know, because I'm not ashamed of it, I'm fully convinced of a Calvinistic Reformed doctrine. That's who I am in my core. You guys probably know that. I believe in the Reformed Calvinistic approach to the application of the church and church polity and how it executes its holiness and living and fellowship of the saints I shouldn't have to be ashamed of that or hide it. Nor is it wrong for me to discuss that with love and with tact without a sense of I've arrived and you haven't. And this is important. I know for a fact here today there are people with different backgrounds and traditions who would disagree with me. And you know what? What? We should be able to sit down and have God-glorifying conversations. And I should be able to challenge you. And you should be able to challenge me. And God is glorified when we can be unified together, working for the sake of the church multiplying and the Word of God being preserved. There must be love. There must be tact. And a desire to be biblical, not simply right. So I'd encourage you guys to be studiers of the Word. I believe that divisions have allowed for God to purify His church and those who belong to Him all throughout history. And I think today, there is a need for denominations. And I think that when denominations who are gospel-centered can work together based on the Word of God, it promotes the unity and love of God in a way that nothing else can